It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Live your own way in the Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu dealer today on SENWA. Live from the Toolkit Depot studio, this is Mornings with Mark Duffield. Wednesday morning. It looks like a glorious morning outside here, outside the window of the, the Toolkit Depot studio at Optus Stadium. Bit of a breeze blowing. It's loving this milder weather at the tail end of a very hot Perth summer. We're climbing to a comfortable 29 degrees today. We've got a big show for you today. We're going to talk to former Aussie leggy Bryce McGain about the test starting tomorrow in New Zealand at Wellington's Basin Reserve. Uh, of course, it's a big moment for New Zealand. It's like their Ashes series and how will the Aussies shape up? How will Cam Green go? How will we handle what is likely to be a seeming sporting wicket? I was one of 400 people lucky enough last night to attend the tribute to outgoing West Coast CEO Trevor Nisbet. We're going to talk to his uh, former ally and brother-in-arms, Murray McHenry. Of course, Murray's been a former chairman of West Coast, also a former chairman of the West Australian Football Commission, a bloke who worked hand-in-hand with Trevor over much of his 35 years, which netted West Coast four premierships from seven grand final, an enviable record. If you have any thoughts on what we talk about on the show, you can text in on 0487 736 736. We'd love to hear from you on the Bower and O'Day open line on 13 12 55, Bower and O'Day, because the little things are everything. Trevor Nisbet's function, which was called Take a Bow, Trevor Nisbet, was held at his old stomping ground at Subiaco Oval. It was a wonderful reflection of Trevor's time in the game and his reach in the game, and was a part roast as well. It's fair to say Trevor's height, or lack of it, got a fair run, and it's fair to say there were varying reports of his footballing ability. Uh, His former East Perth teammate, Chris Allen, seemed to think he was a pretty good player, and there were some not-so-complimentary observations on his playing ability from his former chairman at West Coast, Dalton Gooding. But the people who made the effort to come say a lot about Trevor's reach in the game and his ability over 35 years and more, both as an administrator and a person, to build, foster and maintain relationships. There were big wig politicians there, Julie Bishop and Ben White, just a couple that I saw. There were CEOs from rival clubs there. Simon Garlick came from across town, but others came from across the country. AFL CEO Andrew Dillon was there and made a speech. Some of his staffers, including WA's Sean Gorman and an old mate of mine from Victoria, Brian Walsh, were also there. Club CEOs included Greg Greg Swan from Brisbane and Brendan Gale from Richmond, former Sydney CEO Andrew Ireland, 
And former Swans president and inaugural West Coast chairman Richard Collis was also there. Also saw Brian Waldron uh, at the function as well. Of course, a, a former notable uh, administrator, both in football and also in rugby league. But I think this is probably the thing that stands out most about Trevor Nisbet. There are also childhood mates there. I ran into South Bunbury boys, Mark Harris, Trevor Banger-Francis, Jeff Hares, and lucky Frank Panuccio. Panuccio, Francis, and Harris make an annual trek to the Spring Carnival in Melbourne with Trevor Nisbet to honour one of their mates who is no longer with us, Peter Upson, who incidentally is an old premiership teammate of mine from South Bunbury. Once you're a friend of Trevor, you're a friend for life. And whether you were a friend or foe of Trevor, he has an enormous time span in the game with enormous achievement. Four premierships at West Coast as either footy manager or CEO, seven grand finals, two premierships at Subiaco. And, of course, the financial positions of both those clubs speaks to Trevor's skill as an administrator. Now, we're hoping to get Trevor on the show next week. Uh, We've got that tentatively booked in for next Wednesday. But today we're going to talk to Murray McHenry uh, on his reflections on Trevor's time in the game. I think it's fair to say Trevor has been a giant of the game here, whether you, as I mentioned, are a friend or an enemy, and in football you make plenty of both. I'm sure he would have liked to have left his club in better shape with the Eagles at the bottom of what is shaping as a very tough rebuild. But the theme of the night was Trevor Nisbet take a bow, and he has earned every bit of the respect he got at Subiaco Oval last night. Well, it's a big day in Melbourne this morning. It's the first big tribunal hearing of the season and the one which may set the precedent and the agenda for head knocks this season. Port Adelaide's Sam Pell Pepper faces the AFL judiciary for a hit that left Adelaide's Mark Keane concussed in the pre-season showdown last weekend. Now, there are uncomfortable backdrops to this. The AFL is facing a mega class action on concussion injuries. Make no mistake, this class action represents the biggest single financial threat that the AFL faces. There's pressure to increase the length of time that a concussed player should spend in its concussion protocols from 12 to 21 days. Now, I think Pal Pepper must be suspended, but I hope it is not more than three weeks. More than three weeks would reek of the AFL tribunal punishing Pal Pepper for what they failed to do to Collingwood's Braden Maynard last year. Well, we are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu, and you can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. And thanks to Isuzu, here are four thoughts on footy to four-wheel drive you to work today. I'm going to talk about the four players at WA's two AFL clubs who have the capacity to lift their club beyond expectations this season. And I'm not going to be Captain Obvious too much. I might be Captain Obvious a little bit. I'm going to leave out Harley Reid and Nathan Fife. They're the two obvious ones. But my thought one on the Eagles is Bailey Williams. The one upside to the nasty hamstring tendon injury suffered by Matt Flynn, which will probably take him out of much of the first half of the season, is that it gives Williams more time to work on his pure ruck craft. He was one of the club's most improved players last year. He is 23. He is one game short of 50 games. This is nowhere near peak for a ruckman. 
He's still two years away from that, but he's getting very close to the point where glimpses should become more sustained performances. He averaged 27 hitouts a game last year. He laid three tackles a game. He won eight contested possessions a game and four clearances a game. This is good base numbers to build on. He is big. He can run, he can jump, and he can mark. All the raw materials are there. Thought two, we're still on the Eagles, and... There's a little bit of Captain Obvious about this one. Elliot Yo, He was West Coast's best player in their premiership year in 2018. He is still young enough, around 30, to play his best footy if his body holds up. He has been the single biggest missing piece of the puzzle for the Eagles since 2020 when he first developed osteitis pubis. An Eagles midfield with both Tim Kelly and Yo in it fit and firing can afford to have some kids around them. One without them is going to be clobbered regularly. He is massive for them. Thought three, on to Fremantle. Sean Darcy, the big boy. Swaggy, as he is known down at Freo, is the one player, I think, with the capability to shift Fremantle's 2024 prospects. He needs to be the first step in the assembly line to a dominant midfield. And with Nathan Fife back in there, the Dockers have the opportunity to have a dominant midfield. And with what they've invested in their ruck stocks, they need a dominant midfield. And Darcy also needs to get forward and kick some goals this year. He was worth double-figure double goals to the Dockers in 2021 and 2022. He kicked only four last year. He needs to start holding his marks again. He used to be a good target in the hot spot. He took 90 marks in 2021. That figure has plunged to 50 in the last two seasons. He needs to stay fit. He is 25 and still two games shy of 100 games. And thought four, Alex Pierce, the skipper. At Fremantle. I thought Alex Pierce did a great job as the stand in skipper in 2022 when Nat Fife was injured for most of the season. He was handed the role full time last year and at times looked uncertain of himself and introverted. I watched the Dockers train yesterday down at Coburn and Pierce looked really up and about and running on top of the ground. Brennan Cox is injured. At best, he will be underdone in round one and more unlikely than likely to play in that round. The Dockers need the best version of Pierce in their back line, especially early in the season, until Cox finds his feet again. It is time for Alex Pierce, the skipper, to put a stamp on the team. Do you agree or disagree? You can give us your thoughts on the text line on 0487 736 736 or you can call on the Bower and O'Day open line on 13 12 55. Bower and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA. After the break, we'll be talking to former chairman of West Coast and the West Australian Football Commission, Murray McHenry, about his reflections on the administrative career of Trevor Nisbet. Welcome back to the show. We've got a lot coming up on the show. We're about to talk to Murray McHenry, the former chairman of the WA Football Commission, the former chairman of West Coast Eagles, of course, one of the the, the real power brokers behind the rise of the Eagles in the 1990s. If you ha- want to share your thoughts about anything we talk about on the show, you can. That is on the text line on 0487 736 736. We'd love to hear from you on the Bower and O'Day open line on 13 12 55. But now, Murray McHenry. Murray, Welcome. Uh, good morning, Duff. How's the uh, how are the grapes looking this year, mate? Is it a good vintage down there? Well, it's certainly a very early one, and uh, which has its challenges. But uh, uh, yeah, we're about three three weeks minimum early uh, due to the very hot spring and uh, early summer. So 
Uh, but the quality is fantastic again. It's a testament to Margaret River as a region. So I saw you there at the um, the take a bow Trevor Nisbet function last night at Subiaco Oval, the old stomping ground of all of us involved in footy in Western Australia. It was a it was a really good show, wasn't it? It was sensational, and uh, I, I pay compliments to the government for uh, for how they've presented Subiaco Oval to the community and uh, having that facility there last night. Uh, it's the first event held there, and uh, it was uh, apt that it. It was Trevor's uh, stomping ground very much, Subiaco Football Club, uh, in, in the late uh, 80s. And uh, and then West Coast Eagles, obviously, from 1989, the late, late part of 89. I reckon you and I might have been at the last function at Subiaco, which was the one in the marquee out in the middle. Um, when football left the ground, and uh, and now back at this one in the, it's a really nice outdoor hall, isn't it? The, that 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 hall they've got there. Yeah, I think it is. I think the uh, facility for the community, particularly, uh, and that's the community of West Australia, but but it's probably more Subiaco uh, community, uh, local sporting clubs to allow kids to come and run around on the oval and enjoy it, and and be able to sit in that uh, undercover area and. Uh, and have a good view of uh, what their kids are doing out on the hallowed turf of CBO. Murray, tell us about Trevor Nisbet. Tell us when you first met him and what your first impressions of him were. Uh, Well, my first uh, meeting was when he was put forward uh, by uh, Bill Kerr uh, as as the potential uh, football manager in uh, around September of 19. 89. We waited until uh, Subiaco Football Club had finished their their season, and uh, and then Trevor was brought in and uh, uh, offered the job uh, for a short period, uh, just to uh, come in and, and feel his way around it. And then, uh, if he wanted to be a applicant for the role, uh, we would know that before Christmas and. Uh, he immediately obviously took that on. And uh, so that was my first introduction to Trevor. Uh, and, uh, you know, we immediately then went into the... Uh, within days, we were appointing a new coach in Michael Malthouse. And uh, that uh, combination, as it turned out, some months later and years later, uh, became a great combination. What's the outstanding trait, do you think, that Trevor has that has made him uh, a successful football administrator over 35 years? I think the education in Bunbury, Duff. I think uh, he's, a, he's a man of very simple, uh, direct uh, and accurate ways in which he manages. And uh, so football players and coaches and those sort of things uh, always understood where, you know, where he was coming from. He was very... Uh, articulate in the way he delivered messages to uh, everybody that he were under his control. So I think that's the best part about uh, Trevor is there's no bullshit. It's just straight down the line uh, and you get on with it. Yeah, no, he doesn't waste words. He's very direct. Sometimes the words he uses have no more than four letters in them. Um, he's, he's, uh, a, but he's a very, I think, as you mentioned, you always know where Trevor is coming from. You always know where you stand with him. Um, and I, I guess in a footy club where you've got so many different types of personalities and um, and so many um, different things that can go right or wrong, that's a valuable trait to have. It certainly is. And I think, 
you know, above Trevor is always, uh, particularly as the CEO, is the board, and they come from all different walks of life and uh, and and sit on uh, other companies of totally different structures to a football club. So for him to be very direct to them as well, so he doesn't pussyfoot around uh, board members as he doesn't with uh, players, coaches and, and staff. Now, one thing that uh, Dalton Gooding talked about last night when he was making his speech was the the annual fixture uh, Geelong in Geelong and you would all go down to Lawn and have a big um, uh, nosh up the night before the game. You were known as the Maharaja, I believe, because of your culinary skills. Um, do you have one? <laughs> do you have one? And we and we heard about the moment you worsted in two thousand and six, Murray, because it was too cold, and the the Eagles pulled off arguably their greatest home and away win of all time when they came from fifty odd points down to beat the Cats. But um, do you have one memorable Trevor moment that stands out from the others? Oh, sure. Uh, look, when we'd go down there, uh, it didn't matter how much consumption of the night before. Uh, you get up in the morning and stand on the veranda, look down the cliff into, onto the, the beach below, and there was this little stumpy bloke bloody doing... It was only about 150 metres of beach down there, and this body would be going backwards and forwards in the soft sand, uh, sweating, it, sweating it out. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was always quite a bit of humour. And then he had to climb up the cardiac hill to get back to the house. So, I mean, it was literally a, 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 a vertical walk up the hill and uh, he would have to come and lie down and, and, and rest the little body. So clearly Trevor had a contract that went until the end of this year and he's out the door early. Are you comfortable with the way his departure was handled by West Coast? I, look, I don't think uh, any departure's got a script that, is perfect, uh, but look, the club had to find his replacement, and you know, Don Pike was looked at uh, at least three years before at the combination of his coaching in Adelaide, and uh, there was a strong approach to him to be in waiting for Trevor's uh, eventual uh, retirement, and he. Uh, hadn't got coaching out of his system and as we all know he went to Sydney uh, and the club then uh, appointed Trevor for, for a longer period. Uh, then tr- the message came back that Don would be uh, open to, to look at the role uh, for this year and uh, when they got that uh, then they had to act on that because He's the future. He's the next, call it, 10-year CEO. Um, and, and Trevor was understanding of that uh, and, uh, and has accommodated that, that change uh, very well. When you think of the most significant figures over West Coast history, and it's, a, it's now a 30-odd-year history and it's a very proud history, four premierships and seven grand finals and a very financially successful club, where does Trevor sit in the pecking order of the most influential people in West Coast history, do you think? Oh, look, he, he, he sits at, at, at the very top of that. Uh, uh, is, there's no one individual, uh, including Trevor, that uh, would have a mantle there. Uh, I think there's a lot of people uh, that, that sit at the top uh, of what the club's achieved on and off the field. So there's on-field, there's off-field uh, people that have, uh, have made significant contributions to 
to where the club is at today. Uh, notwithstanding the on-field today is uh, going through correction, as we all understand, uh, and we hope that correction's uh, quite swift over the next 12 to 24 months, uh, that we're seen as a, a club that uh, performs on-field again uh, because the last three years have been very difficult for all of us uh, involved and love the club. Uh, our supporters uh, uh, aren't akin to watching this, uh, so we, we want to see change. But uh, in terms of your question, uh, look, Trevor's very much you know, sits on that top shelf with a number of people who have made that significant contribution. Uh, Trevor's been an employee of the club, uh, and there's a lot of people, whether they're employed at the club or whether they're uh, voluntary people, uh, because the football club, as most in Australia, don't have paid boards. Uh, so chairman and uh, board members are, are voluntary, and uh, and it, it probably costs them money to, to be involved in the club. So it, we've been very lucky to uh, have attracted really good board members over that period. We have a rotation system uh, and a person like Trevor as the CEO of such long standing has had to put up with a uh, and make change to, to each chair that he's had and each board member because it's a three by three year rotation. Uh, so board members don't stay long within nine years. So you no sooner get used to someone there's a rotation uh, and that's healthy. Um, because we looked at it many years ago and saw the Carlton's of the world with John Elliott, who would never leave, and uh, and and they treated the club as their own. So, uh, if if you ask your listeners uh, name three chairmen, uh, they'd lucky to get one, <laughs> and that's because we're very much driven by the CEO and the coach. Yeah, no, that's a good call actually, and it's a good, it's a it's a fascinating trait. That um, that West Coast do have Murray. Are you comfortable that the club is going to get back on track quickly, or do you have concerns? No, I'm I'm, I'm very uh, buoyed by uh, the changes they've made, uh, and I think you'll see uh, a strong influence come from Don Pike as the CEO. He'll he'll be uh, driven to get success back. Uh, on field. So it, it starts at the top and I think the board's uh, well equipped to support Don down through the coaching ranks. The recruiting has been as good as it could be. Uh, it, you know, it's a difficult thing. We live in a very socialistic system with the draft reverse order. So we've had our uh, pick from the bottom and uh, you know, I, I, I read with interest what went on yesterday with the West Australian and Peter Sumich. Uh, and I agree with Peter that uh, the pressure put on the young players that because their number one draft pick is just immense. Uh, if we go back when, when we picked Peter Matera uh, many years ago, it, it, it might have got a... You must probably wrote an article, but it wouldn't have been that big and more than likely not on the back page or the front page. Uh, but this ball, kids... Uh, on, on every page of the paper. Uh, so hopefully once the season starts, saddle stops and and the, the young players can, can uh, make their mark without uh, being uh, highly publicised across the community. 
Yeah, I think the the way the draft is publicised now probably inevitably leads to that. It's become a big TV event for the AFL. And um, as you mentioned, when Peter Matera was drafted, I think it was pick four back in uh, 89, I think it was. And um, and basically you just sort of like found out about it down the, uh, not quite down the telegraph line, but certainly it, it wasn't what it is today. So I think that's why Harley has become a big thing. Hopefully we can see do five, six or seven of the things that he did two or three times on Saturday and start to progress as a player when he plays for West Coast against Adelaide at the weekend. Murray, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I hope everything goes well with the, uh, the, the great crop this year. Hopefully we see some good wines out of it and hopefully we see you at the footy a few times in 2024. You'll see me there all the time. Okay, thanks, uh, guys. Bye-bye. Murray McHenry, he is a former chairman of the West Coast Eagles. He is a former chairman of the West Australian Football Commission, known as one of the most powerful figures in footy over the last 30 years and a very close friend and ally of Trevor Nisbet over the journey. Give us your thoughts. 0487 736 736 is the text line. The open line, Bower and O'Day open line, is 13 12 55. Bower and O'Day, because the little things are everything. We'll be back after the news. Yes, welcome back to the show. Of course, we've got a long weekend coming up in WA this weekend and a reminder for the upcoming long weekend that double demerits apply from midnight Thursday until midnight Monday for speeding or using a mobile phone or radar detector while driving. If you get caught, you could lose your licence twice as fast. After the break, we'll be talking to former Aussie leggy Bryce McGain, of course, about the test in New Zealand that starts tomorrow between the Aussies and the Kiwis likely to be played on a very sporting deck. Back with Bryce soon. SENWA, live from the Toolkit Depot studio. This is Mornings with Mark Duffield. Welcome back to the show. If you want to have your say on anything that we've discussed on the show, you can. You can text in on 0487 736 736. We'd love to hear from you on the Bauer and O'Day open line on 13 12 55. Well, of course, Australia's tour of New Zealand is ongoing. We swept them in the T20s. We've got two test matches to go. The first one starts at the Basin Reserve tomorrow and you can join SEN Cricket for ball-by-ball commentary of that first test between New Zealand and Australia live from the Basin. Coverage begins Thursday at 5am WA time, available across the SEN and SENZ network and the SEN SENZ app. And Bryce McGain, He's a full book on Test cricket. Great leggy, of course, from Victoria and a couple of times for Australia. Bryce, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. And this is the most exciting part, I think, of the whole summer because Australia, I think they've over-delivered. Well, the Test series have over-delivered. Pakistan was riveting. Um, as much as we were probably anticipating it to be a bit of a fizzer, it was fantastic. West Indies was good, and we got a bit of a smack there in Sydney as well. So this is the cherry on top, I think, from the Test summer. And uh, I'm really excited to see how the Australian team go over in the New Zealand conditions because it's, it's been a challenge in the past. So they like their seeming wickets, which means they'll probably prepare a seeming wicket. Every nation prepares a wicket that's conducive to, to its bowling attack. How do you think the, the wicket plays on the first couple of days? Yeah, I think it's going to be lively. And uh, if they don't do that, I'll be really disappointed from a New Zealand perspective. They've got to play to their trump card and... What they're capable of uh, delivering is, is batsmen who can cope with it. There's none better in the world than Kane Williamson playing the moving ball, the seeming ball. 
he's absolutely outstanding. And, and all those trade secrets have been shared also with, with uh, all the New Zealand batsmen. And they're really capable in those conditions. Slower wickets that seam and the ball swinging, it's really hard work. So Australia traditionally haven't been good in those types of conditions. So it is going to be a, a serious challenge for that Australian batting lineup. So what makes Kane Williamson so good? What's the technical aspect of him, do you think, that enables him to play? Because the moving ball, particularly delivered at the sort of speed the Aussie pacemen are going to bowl it, is no no easy thing. Yeah, look, that's a really good question because what he does, he plays the ball late, the ball comes to him. Very rarely will you see him punching the ball down the ground. Now, in Australia, we do that all the time, full face punch it down the ground, pace on the wicket, the ball comes onto the bat. It's easier to do that. With the moving ball, you're doing that, you're edging it, or you're missing the inside edge, your pads and the stumps are all in play as well. So what it means is that he's playing the ball later. He'll play the ball squarer of the wicket, particularly through the offside, and even wait so much that he just lets the ball and guides it away and running the ball down to third man on a moving ball. There's no one better than he to do that. So they're the types of things that he adapts to those conditions. Now, when he goes and plays in other conditions, he adapts his game accordingly. Australia, he does play with a full face and hit down the ground. But in those moving ball conditions, he sets his mind set to um, playing in that manner. And it works incredibly well. Anything short, he's really, really good at. Because if you're bowling short on a seaming wicket, you're giving away the advantage. So he nearly forces the bowlers to go back of a length and then he can really hop into them. And it's a formula there in their own way. The other New Zealand batsmen are doing it, but that is the formula to, to cope with a moving ball. Based on what you've just told me, Bryce, who do you expect to thrive in New Zealand test conditions from the Australian batting lineup, and who do you think may struggle? Yeah, look, at, we've got a new batting lineup, really, with Steve Smith opening. We've got Cameron Green uh, in at number four, and, you know, it's been spoken about quite a lot uh, in that test series. And, you know, have we got the right solution there? Who knows? Um, I like it. Personally, I like what we're doing and, and, and giving that a go. And if it's reinvigorating Steve Smith, um, as much as we sort of go, oh, did it work, did it not? A lot of negative comments coming out in the public about it. Steve Smith averaged 60 as an opener. So uh, that's what he's been able to do out of the two tests that he's done that role. So it, it probably shows that he's capable of doing that. But the, I guess Steve Smith is the, the best problem solver we have in the lineup. Manus Labuschagne is not far behind in being able to do that the more aggressive types may find it a bit more of a challenge. So the guys like a Mitch Marsh who does stand tall and bangs the ball down the ground, it might be a bit of a challenge for those guys. So um, it, it, they'll need to adapt. All that information will be shared with them about how to successfully manoeuvre playing in these conditions. But they also need to play to their strengths a bit as well. You can't completely change a game that's been successful. So there's a balance between you've got to manoeuvre everything to bat like somebody else other than we've got to have that positive mindset. Travis Head is another one that can adapt pretty well, but he, he, he is a, a go-at-all-cost type batsman at five. So it's going to be fascinating how it all unfolds. Um, I, I can't wait for it. I'm really, really excited, though. It's a, it's a big series for Cam Green, isn't it? He went back and played Sheffield Shield. He scored a ton in the second innings down in in Tasmania on a on a deck that got increasingly friendly as the game went on. Um, it's never quite materialised yet at test level. We all see the potential, and I think we all know the ability is there. 
Um, what do you want to see from him in this two-test series? Well, I think it does suit his batting as well. And I left him out of that conversation to delve in a bit deeper. I'm glad you asked the question because I think he has those those attributes to be really patient. Um, and because of his height, he has a bigger stride. So he can change and challenge the batsman's when he particularly uh, the bowler's length, particularly when he's playing forward. So he's a difficult guy to bowl to. And so uh, I think it, it can suit the way that he plays. He's very patient. He's very good technical. Uh, so I, I think it can set up really well for him. I, I think it's the right move for Australia in the future. Um, it's not going to be perfect all the time, and I think this is a good challenge early in that role, in that plum role at number four. Number six isn't his position. That is best suited to someone like a Mitch Marsh or a Travis Head that really pushes the game forward. Um, Cam Green at this stage in his test career isn't that player yet, but uh, I'm sure it will evolve over the years to come. Given that our bowlers bowl at about 140 clicks, are these moving conditions going to suit them? Will they be more dangerous, you know, the guys like um, our big guns, our big pacemen, or do they need to be more like a Tim South? He has bowled so successfully for New Zealand and come off a bit and try and get the ball going sideways. Yeah, and I think that's where someone like a, a, a Scott Boland, if you're talking horses for courses, he's, he's probably around that 135, uh, he, he, now he can crank it up when he needs to, but he doesn't need to do that all the time. He bowls at sort of 80% and then he's got the ball that is a bit quicker. But he comes into the, the, the calculations here, I think, with that uh, that attack because he's so relentless. Um, it's not going to be Baz Ball played against him where his predictability was nearly his downfall because they could know that he's going to hit that spot and they'll reverse ramping him and doing all sorts of different things which became a challenge in the Ashes. I think over there, New Zealand won't be playing that way. They'll be more conventional. And Scott Boland, uh, <laughs> I'm sure he'll be number one vote from anyone in Sheffield Shield cricket for just working you over and working that forward defence over that knee roll length, uh, which he goes time and time again. Um, he could really come into calculations. They're perfect conditions for him. So he would be up the pecking order, even though we do have that, as you say, that, that over 140. We have firepower. Sometimes it is that more that ability to be so consistent um, that, that can be more of a challenge. Some big decisions to made for to make for George Bailey and Andrew McDonald and uh, and for Pat Cummins. It probably says a bit the bowlers that they have on their decks that have been so successful, isn't it? That probably tells you something about the way we possibly should go. Hey, have you been following the India England Test series much? And if you have, what have you I made have of been. that? It's been a fascinating yeah. series, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's nearly as exciting the cricket on the field as much as the banter off the field <laughs> and what's going on. Uh, England keeps saying that they're, they're the most unlucky team in the world. Lots yep, of moral they, victories they there, Ross. <laughs> lots of moral victories. Yep, they outplayed India once again, but unfortunately, no, they didn't win the Test match. No, <laughs> and so it's getting a little tiresome. I think. Um, look, there is a lot of positivity about the way that they're playing their game and and how they're. Um, empowering each of the players there. They all feel in a really um, comfortable environment and they're very well supported to play in the manner in which they are. But is it bringing results for them? Time's going to tell and time is telling that it hasn't been that successful. So uh, it, it was going to be the big test over in India. Can they sustain it? Yeah, they certainly have played good cricket. It was a bit like the Ashes. Yeah, they played good cricket. Um, they challenged the opposition at times. They've won a test over there. Um, but 
you know, India now are really flexing on top of them and India showing their batting depth is just outrageous. Virat Kohli hasn't played this series and won't. Um, and, you know, and I've got other players that step in. Shubman Gill is a superstar of the game. Um, you know, they've just got this plethora of players that is just so impressive um, in their own conditions. It is a challenge for them when they go away, but uh, I've really thoroughly enjoyed it, not just in the least uh, that uh, England are losing, but the fact that the cricket's been such high quality. Bryce, thanks so much for joining us on the show. I think I agree with you. I think the Test Series coming up between Australia and New Zealand is going to be a fascinating one. It's obviously for New Zealand is pretty much the Ashes, it's their big moments when they go up against the, the, the big rivals from across the ditch and uh, really look forward to it, uh, to uh, watching it and hearing it. You can uh, join SEN Cricket for ball-by-ball commentary of that first test between New Zealand and Australia. It's coming to you live from the Basin Reserve. Coverage begins Thursday at 5 a.m. WA time. It's available across the SEN and SENZ network and the SEN, SENZ app. Thank you, Bryce. No worries at all. Always a pleasure to catch up. Have a ripper day. That's Bryce McGain, and we'll be back after the break. Welcome back to the show. We've had some good texts coming through on the text line on 0487 736 736. We'd also love to hear from from you on the Bauer and O'Day open line on 13 12 55. Bauer and O'Day, because the little things are everything. Paul Heath is with me in the studio. Heater will might knock over a text before the news. Let's do it. Uh, Duff, whilst Nisbet is obviously a good operator, wouldn't you say that most could have made that club profitable? Nine years standalone in the state and uh, then even when Frio joined, still had supporters wrapped up. Anyone could have made money in that environment. For Collingwood to have more members, Richmond to have nearly as many is an indication in my eyes he's underachieved in this area. He's left the club a basket case that will take a decade to re build. Uh, Great operators don't do that, I'm afraid. Uh, There's just one last little bit here. Look how Brian Cook left Geelong, and now that's a great administrator. I know he's your mate, but call it as it is. Cheers, Anthony. Thanks, Anthony. (laughs) I think you don't know my complete history with Trevor. Trevor Trevor and I didn't speak for three years at the height of the drug fiasco uh, at West Coast. We certainly, things got pretty tense between us. Look, 35 years in football is an enormous achievement. Mm. Four premierships, seven grand finals is an enormous achievement. Now, the profitability thing, I mean, Anthony has a point Mm. because West Coast always will be profitable because they are a mammoth club. But he's wrong on the notion that because Collingwood and Richmond have bigger memberships, um, Trevor has failed in that area. Basically, the thing that limits West Coast membership is the size of the stadium. If West Coast had an 80,000-seat stadium... Yeah. To fill, I'll guarantee you they'd put 70,000 bums on seats in the stadium. Now, the average crowd at Collingwood's game last year, I think, was in the early 70s, and that made them something like the fourth highest attended sporting club in mm. the world. Yeah. In the world, mm. Heater. So <clears throat> I'm, I've got no doubt that if West Coast had a bigger stadium, they're a big enough club yeah. to, um, to put 70,000 bums on seats. I think they're every bit as big as Richmond and Collingwood but limited um, by the stadium. The fact that they have as many members as those clubs do, Mm. give or take a 1,000 here or there, probably tells you that he's done a pretty good job in that area. The four premierships tell you that he was a very good football manager and has been a very good CEO. The Mm. seven grand finals, same thing again. Um, Was his time up? Yes, his time was up. It was time for change. As far as the leaving the club as a basket case, well, financially it's not a basket case, and the list 
uh, is a bad list because they tried to push too long mm. into the premiership window. Now, a lot of clubs do that. Mm. Richmond is in, at risk of doing that now. Geelong is at risk of doing that now. These are clubs that are well run. It's a very difficult industry. It's not an exact science. Mm. Over the 35 years, Trevor Nisbet has been a very good administrator. Trevor and I are not bosom buddies, <laughs> as Anthony would suggest, but I think a legacy like he has left and a record like he has left is worthy of note and worthy of appreciation. Mm. And, I mean, as, as maligned as we are over here in WA, he did it in WA. So He did it in WA. Counts for twofold, I reckon. And the big wigs come over to pay tribute to him, which <laughs> is right. something as well. <laughs> we'll be back with more Ben Smith on soccer and rugby after the news. Uh, Justin Lane out there having a bit of fun with me, playing a bit of music. I have no idea what that was. What was that, Justin? Thank you. <laughs> For Ben Smith, obviously. Ben Smith from the West Australian joins us. Very fine young sports writer, uh, equally adept at covering soccer and rugby. And we're going to talk about both of those things to Ben on the show today. Ben, welcome. Hi, Duff. How are you doing? And um, I, be- I couldn't hear what Justin's response was, but I believe that was Ocean Avenue by Yellow Cars. Um yeah, you get a tick for that, mate. And clearly you're more up to speed with modern music than I am. If it gets past Bruce Springsteen, I'm starting to struggle a fair bit. <laughs> it's uh, it's so, 20 years old. It's not that modern, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's modern for a 60-year-old. <laughs> ben, uh, Perth Glory, nil all draw to Wellington Phoenix last weekend. Good result or not? Yeah, I think it was a good result. Uh, you know, there was a disappointment from... Alan Stadich and the team afterwards that they weren't able to get a win, but I think you've got to look at it, you know, from a whole season perspective. You know, two months ago, if you'd offered for glory a nil-all draw against the league leaders, they probably would have taken it. I don't show how far they've come in the space of, you know, five or six weeks. The fact that they're no longer content with, uh, you know, a scoreless draw against a pretty good team in the the Phoenix. So, yeah, it wasn't... It wasn't a bad game either. I think people tend to look at the result and say, oh, nil draw, uh, you know, a bit of a bore draw, probably wasn't much going on. But, you know, I found it interesting from a, you know, from a tactical perspective. And, you know, I thought the glory kept the ball well without, you know, creating too many chances. Um, and Wellington, you know, particularly in the final half hour, I thought started to look quite dangerous. And, you know, I think a, a point was a fair result. I don't think either side will be particularly happy with the draw. But... Overall, I think it was a uh, fair showing. So, there. I think is it six matches in a row without defeat? Is that right for Glory at the moment? There's six games unbeaten for the Glory, which is uh, when you consider, you know, they could barely buy a win at the start of the year. So the fact that they're not only getting wins but also, you know, proving hard to defeat is, you know, that's huge for the Glory. It shows, you know, as I mentioned earlier, how far they've come in a short period of time. The fact that. You know, after a slow start, Alan Stadich's methods are are working. They are resonating with the playing group. So what's changed then? Obviously, we know about the off-field stuff and the uncertainty that must have created with the playing group. And I, I think it's been a mighty performance by the Glory players and the coaches to maintain spirit and maintain energy through all of that. But But what else has changed that's made them a lot tougher to play against than they were previously? I think they've just, they're just more familiar and more, uh, you know, 
they, they know what Stadich wants. They've kind of had, you know, three, four months under his tutelage now. And I think it's, you know, a case of the, uh, you know, they finally kind of clicked, OK, like, this is what we want to do in this situation. You know, this is how we want to build up from the back. Everyone is, you know, Stadich uses the word, you know, united and aligned a lot in press conferences. Um, you know, particularly with players coming in, they're united and aligned in what that they want to do as a squad. And I think that wasn't... There were some there were some teething issues with the way they wanted to play under Stadich, and you know it, do, it just feels like every player is kind of familiar with the style. It's all clicking into place. You know, I don't. You know, uh, the new owners came in, you know, a couple of weeks ago, but the glory were already on this. Uh, you know, already had begun this kind of unbeaten run by the time that you know, had got to the club. So it's really, uh, you know. It, I think this goes to show that, you know, not everything happens overnight in professional sports. You need a little bit of patience, and particularly, you know, in terms of this uh, under Alan Sadich. Now, he couldn't really bring any players in in either transfer window um, because of, uh, you know, the the lack of ownership at the time. Now that's being fixed, you know, Sadich will have a pretty keen idea of, you know, areas he wants to bolster, um, you know, come the end of the season. So... And you're right. Good. It does take time to fix, and it's because good coaches have building blocks, don't they? And they put things in place that can be built upon. So, what's the next building block that has to go into place for this team? You mentioned they didn't create a hell of a lot of scoring chances against Wellington Phoenix on the weekend. So, how do they go about doing that? How do they not only be hard to play against and hard to score against, but also get more dangerous themselves? Do you think? Yeah, I think. Um you know, I'm glad you mentioned the defence there because it was just a second uh, clean sheet that the Glory have had this season. Um, so that you know, that's something that they'll be after. They've been really poor defensively over the last six or seven weeks, even though they've been undefeated through most of those games. They have been shipping a lot of goals, so good to see the defence start to write itself a bit. But just in terms of what they need to do when they do have the ball. Um, I think they just need to be a bit more creative. I don't think they've got many, or if any, you know, creative midfielders in the team. So that'll be an area that they should look to strengthen in the off-season. You know, I think uh, Giordano Colley looks more comfortable in that kind of deeper midfield role. He started life as more of an attacking midfielder. Uh, and this season, he's kind of been more of a defensive midfielder, sitting a bit deeper, kind of controlling possession a bit more. And he's starting to look a bit more comfortable, uh, you know, especially the last few weeks. What I want to see from you know from him now is you know okay he's got the kind of you know the recycling and ball retention kind of under you know under he knows what he needs to do in that respect. Can he now create from deep? Can he link up with Adam Taggart more frequently? Can he link up with Stefan Kolakowski more frequently? Um, I think Glory uh, you know in the middle of a park. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. I, I'd like to see them uh, recruit a couple of, you know, creative players who can play, you know, in that, the way that Stadich lines them up, they play four, four defenders, two central midfielders, two, two wide attacking midfielders and two strikers. For me, those two central midfielders need to be more creative. They need to be better at playing the ball, not just out wide on counter-attacks, but they need to be better at playing in between the defensive lines. They need to be better at hitting up Adam Taggart because Adam Taggart is very good with the ball at his feet. It's one of his strengths as a player. It's not just that he puts the ball in the net. It's that he can drop in, he can hold players off, he can link up with other players, draw players, defenders in. 
suck them out of position and then, you know, the glory can flip the switch and they're away. So Western United this weekend, what do you expect out of that game? Uh, what are the prospects of getting a victory in that one? It'll be an interesting one because Western United have been for long stretches the worst team in the competition. But recently they have managed to turn things around on the pitch, which is, you know, they're kind of in a similar boat to Glory. Glory has, obviously Glory and United were the two, you know, worst teams in the league for a long stretch, or at least by the latter. Uh, United is still bottom of the table, but, um, you know, they've got four points from their last three games. They're not, um, you know, too far. They're seven points off Newcastle and Adelaide, who are both below the glory now. But, you know, their form and their performances over the last month or so have really improved. Uh, when you've got a player like they do, uh, Daniel Pena, who is, you know, I think one of the most fun players in the league to watch. Uh, you know, he's a fantastic player. Uh, Noah Bottich is someone who's been spoken about as a, you know, real, you know, young striking talent. Uh, you know, for a long time in Australian football, he's, you know, he shows glimpses here and there, but he, you know, he's always someone you've got to watch. Uh, you know, because he, he's just he's good at peeling off the back shoulder of a defender when they least expect it. And um, the other factor is, you know, it is an away game. The glory has improved on the road, you know, recently, but you know, on the whole, their away form is still, you know, very below par. So the glory will be keen to, you know, to continue to improve on the road. Uh, but, yeah, it's still, you know, the travel factor still re- represents a bit of a challenge for this team. They've climbed a little bit from the bottom of the table. What's achievable between now and the end of the season? How much further can they go? And I guess if they want to go anywhere, it's probably important that they start winning games like this one. Yeah, well, that's what Alan Stadrick said last week. He said, you know, he was he's very honest. He says, we're in the hunt for the finals football. We're in the hunt for the top six. We need to be winning games more than we're drawing them. Uh, they're currently seven points off Sydney in sixth spot, and Sydney are really starting to hit their straps under Ulfric Talley uh, as coach. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be pretty tough to uh, to catch Sydney, <laughs> but I think the way the Glory have played over the past month shows that you know even if they don't get there, they're going to be tough to beat, and they're going to win games, and they're going to really you know give it their all. And I think they are going to be in a, in an in or around that top six mix. Uh, you know, there's only, you know, I think, you know, eight or so games left in the season, but I don't see any reason why they can't, you know, begin to haul, haul in a couple of the teams above them. You know, they did beat Brisbane a couple of weeks ago. They've got a game in hand over Brisbane, so if they do win against Western United, uh, there's a chance that they leapfrog Brisbane, which would be put them in eighth. Um, I, I think they just need to continue, in terms of on pitch stuff, I think they just need to continue to pick up where they left off defensively against Wellington, not ship too many goals. They're always going to score goals over the long run, Glory. There's so much attacking talent in this team with Daniel Benny, Adam Taggart, Seth Kolakovsky, David Williams, uh, Joel and Asmo has been good off the bench recently. So, you know, it's just, for me, I want to see them keep more clean sheets. sheets. I want to see them concede less goals, and I think, you know, that'll help them move up the table. Now, on to rugby. Not a great start for Western Force, it's fair to say, against the Hurricanes at HBF Park last Friday. 44-14 all came about because of a woeful first half, Ben. Yeah, there was uh, Force were held scores in the first half, and it was a real disappointing start for the season because, for me, the Force are a lot stronger 
than they were at the start of last season. There was a lot of excitement uh, about the force, you know, maybe not from over east, but, you know, certainly internally and amongst the force fans over here, there was a real buzz about the team and it was a, you know, I kind of described it as a Mercy's War type of game because everything that went wrong for the force could have gone wrong. They obviously, you know, without their two starting locks, Isaac Rodder and Jeremy Williams, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was the line-out completely fell apart, particularly late when they subbed off, subbed off uh, Le Petit Fatoui, uh, who I thought, you know, actually had a decent kind of enough game. He was, I think it was his first ever Super Rugby game. Uh, you know, the scrum was under pressure. Again, you know, they're, they're going to be without Marley Pierce now for, for four weeks after he was uh, suspended for a head had high contact on Geordie Barrett. He was given a yellow card during the game and copped a broken nose for his troubles as well, the poor kid. But, you know, he's a very, uh, he's one of their best props. And the fact that they're now going to be without him when they're also without Angus Wagner, Harry Hooper and the Fisa Alone, uh, you know, it really puts the pressure on uh, the Force's front row stocks. Uh, and, yeah, against the Hurricanes, you know, just there were handling errors, there were poor decisions, there were bad kicks. I think there was a kickoff which went about three metres, just completely scuffed. And, yeah, it just kind of all fell apart at the seams. But, you know, Simon Cron wanted to talk post-game. Uh, you know, he was he was very blunt and uh, in assessing the team's performance as not good enough and disappointing. Um, he did also, um, you know, one of the things he, I think he'll be leading on this week is that, you know, the 10 to 15-minute spell after half-time where they scored two tries to the Hurricanes one. And they did look a lot better. They came out of a out of a break looking like a more composed team. They you know put some points on the scoreboard, kind of began to really uh, you know to try and uh, haul the Hurricanes in. But then it kind of all fell apart again in the last twenty minutes. The Rebels this weekend. What are the prospects there? Uh, it's going to be very tough. Uh, the Rebels obviously are going through some. You know, horrific stuff off field with the, you know, their future becoming even more perilous by the day, and it's really sad to see uh, an Australian club go through that. It is obviously the force went through it themselves a few years ago, and uh, you know, I do I do feel for all the Rebels staff and players and coaches who are being put in this really kind of horrible position. It's it's not nice uh, from an on-field perspective. The Rebels, you know, they got spanked last week by the Brumbies in a really poor showing. I think they'll be very disappointed with that. Uh, Force, you know, Force, Force didn't win a single game on the road last year. They signalled out that, you know, they signals that their away form needs to change. They will arrive in Melbourne, I think, as the underdogs. Maybe not so much, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the list itself, but Missing as many uh, you know forwards as they are at the moment, it makes it really tough on a team. Well, if you've got a, an experienced and you know a, a forward pack which is second best, and the Rebels do actually have a decent forward group, it is going to be hard for the Force to get on the front foot. Which means what they do when they do have the ball is going to be of extra importance because they know they're probably going to lose the forwards battle at least on paper as it stands at the moment. So they, they, they know they're going to be up against it. They know the scrum is going to be under pressure. They know they're going to have to correct the scrum and line out issues from last week. So, you know, for me, it comes down to what are the backs do when they get the ball? Can they, how can they manage this game? How can they, you know, up the tempo when they need to, slow it down when they need to? How can they, uh, you know, if, 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 if a 
as is proved to the case as forwards aren't actually able to to win much of all for force. It, like when the force do have protect, uh, have possession, it's going to take on extra importance. Ben, always a pleasure to have you on the show. You can read Ben's stuff in the West Australian. Very fine young sports writer. Thanks for joining us, mate. In a word, does the force win? I think so. You know, I think they respond really well. I think this is a different team to the one we saw at the start of last year. I think they're going to go over to Melbourne and I think they'll get a good result. All right. Hopefully you're right and hopefully that generates uh, further interest. Good crowd there on the weekend, 8,000. So uh, not good that they had the poor performance. Hopefully they can uh, regain some faith. Ben, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show. No worries. Always a pleasure, Doc. Ben Smith from the West Australian newspaper. As I mentioned, very fine young sports writer. You can text in your thoughts on the force and the glory, 0487 736 736, or we'd love to hear from you on the Barrow and O'Day open line on 13 12 55. We'll be back after the break. Yes, welcome back to the show. If you want to have your thoughts on the show, 0487 736 736 is the text line. We'd love to hear from you on the Bower and O'Day open line on 13 12 55. Bower and O'Day, because the little things are everything. We're going to bring you up to date on the Sam Powell Pepper Tribunal hearing. Paul Heath is with me in the studio. Paul deliberations underway. Yeah, still waiting. About to come up to 30 minutes uh, since the tribunal went off to deliberate. Um, so about two hours worth of hearing, and then they've been in deliberation half an hour uh, in a minute or so. So it sounds like Port Adelaide are pushing for nothing more than three, mm. and it sounds like the AFL believe that four would not be excessive. Is that correct? Um, so... The Port Defence have said anything further than three games would be manifestly excessive. Um, so they're trying to, you know, sort of nabra that bit. But uh, from the AFL, a four-game suspension doesn't suggest that Powell Pepper ran in with a deliberate intention to make contact with Keane's head. Yes, it um, does. The AFL argues this is an entirely predictable outcome and that the responsibility lies with the player to avoid contact with the head. Um, it absolutely suggests that he deliberately ran in to make contact yeah. with the... I mean, four is a lot. Yeah. Three is a lot, really. I yeah. mean, I've had my say on this. I think three is enough for this offence, given that Keane gets swung into him by Willie Rioli. And anything mm. more than three, Hita, as you and I have discussed, tends to indicate that Sam Powell Pepper will not only be serving his suspension, yeah, but he'll be sus- serving the suspension that Maynard should have got for the bump on Brayshaw, which has caused... There's unfortunate and uncomfortable backdrop mm. to this tribunal uh, hearing. So it's yeah, just just I mean it's unfortunate in so many different cases, but that it always just seems to fall on, as you're saying, a non-Victoria club and a non-Victorian player that ends up wearing an extra few weeks yeah. because of the ability or well, the the chance to try and stamp something out. And I mentioned yesterday, I'm not saying the tribunal is anti non-Victorian clubs, I'm saying they react to the media noise. Yep. And the media noise, the tribunal hearings in Melbourne, the media noise that they, they hear most loudly is the media noise from Melbourne. Mm. And it's a lot easier to bury a bloke from another city than it is from your own city. That's just reality. Yep. We're all parochial. It's human nature. And it's one of those built-in biases, if you like, of the AFL system that mm. I think they need to get better at because... Um, 
You know, it's pretty simple. Maynard should have been suspended. I'm yeah. not saying Braden Maynard's a bad person, but Braden Maynard should have been suspended for what happened to Angus Brayshaw in the finals. Though. The two are not tied together, okay? Like, it's not just a uh, suspended bad person, which is uh, what seemingly happened uh, at the end of last year. Let's Ma- get a text out. Yeah, today. Michael's joined us on the text line saying, please note, it's 20 years since Australia beat India in a series in India. England's record uh, basketball. Uh, is va- sorry, England's basketball is vastly superior to pre-basketball. They had not won any of their preceding uh, 17 tests. The series in India is their first series loss. Uh, so, and he comes back with a correction. England had won one of its 17 tests preceding basketball. So obviously Bryce joined in on the fun yeah. <laughs> on uh, Bryce McGain, who we had on the show, joined in on the fun with England. England's look, we're having a bit of fun with England on basketball because they basically claim they won when they lost against the Aussies in the in the Ashes, uh, one of the Ashes tests. And um, and I think if there's a book that's voted most likely to be on Ben Stokes' bookshelf, <laughs> mm. it's the power of positive thinking. He's Peter. doing well. Well, you, and you know what? There's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. And they play cricket in a very attractive way. Um, Basball has made test cricket much more interesting. Um, but... If you win a lot more, if, sorry, if you lose a lot more than you win, then eventually you have to question mm. the method. Now, are they winning enough to say that Basball has succeeded? Um, at the moment, I reckon that's open to debate. Winning hearts and minds, um, not but, games of cricket, though. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's fun to watch. Yeah, great. I mean, the Ashes was fun to watch. It was yeah. a very, it was a, it was a very engaging Test series, um, and it was fun to watch. Maybe continue the Basball. Mm. And work on the rhetoric around it. Well, that's sort of the chat that's now going around is like, are they all in on it? You know, are they just trying to say who can say the most outlandish thing inside the dressing room? I I think the whole whole principle of baseball is be positive. Yeah. Don't think about failure. Think about pulling it off Mm. and being successful. And then they've just extended that. Okay, when the scoreboard says it hasn't worked, we're going to say, well, we succeeded in this, 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 and this. Still didn't fail. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which, that's that's okay. Must be nice. But it, yeah. it is the power of positive thinking. <laughs> I think um, West Coast should try that. Yeah. Club. Oh, see if uh, Ben can, uh, you know, lend him the book. <laughs> it's on his shelf. Yeah. All right. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more after the news. Yeah. Uh, North Melbourne will finish higher than a lot of people are giving them credit for. Well, I'm not getting too excited about North, but it'd be... You actually gave them, a, would, you actually yeah. gave them a small credit. Oh, I said they'll surprise a few. It'll be impossible to go worse. So, I mean, I, I, ex- I expect them to triple their win count. I think they get to nine. Nine. That's a lot. I oh, know. That's eight, a lot. Eight, eight or nine, I think. I was bullish last year and went for six and got howled down, and no, uh, the howlers were right. Eight or nine. If you look at what Hawthorne did last year, there's no reason why. Mm. North can't. Kane Corn says North Melbourne will win nine games this year. I'm not so sure about that. I think North Melbourne will be better. Will they be three times as good? I'm not sure. I reckon if they got to six or seven wins this year, that would be a fair outcome for North Melbourne. Probably still a season away from climbing much further than that. We're going to do our own deep dive thanks to Isuzu, and you can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. After the break, we're going to talk about how many wins for West Coast and Fremantle, our local teams, in 2024. Back with more after the break. You're going to need a bigger boat. Yes, we always need a bigger boat. Duff's Deep Dive 
brought to you by Isuzu, and you can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. We're going to look at West Coast and Fremantle wins for 2024, round by round. A gloriously premature look at what might happen in the season. Heater. you got to throw it at the wall, see what sticks, and then come back in about six months and see how wrong you might have been. Um, who should we start with, Dockers or the Eagles? Let's start with West Coast. All right, West Coast. Uh, round one, away versus Port Adelaide. No. All right, that's a, that's a strong no there. Back home in round two versus the Giants. No. Not a strong start for the West Coast Eagles out of the gate as they take on the Western Bulldogs. At Marvel Stadium in round three. No, still not even, not even half a like a thought. Uh, round four against uh, Sydney at home. No, I could have gone and answered that one for you. Uh, West Coast versus Richmond at Optus Stadium. Yes. Oh, there we go. So round five, looking probably first win for the Eagles for 2024. I think they can... Richmond, I don't think, are going to be as good as people think. And I think by then, West Coast might have some players back. Mm. Hopefully, touch wood, from injury. That'd be big if uh, West Coast pick up the win. Then they head into round six as a derby, a home derby versus the Dockers. No, I don't no, think they no. win a derby this year. Okay. Well, keep on moving. So back on the losers list there, West Coast. Round seven, uh, they take their show on the road to the Gold Coast. Uh, no, not up there. Not up there. Um, back home against the Bombers in round eight. Yes, I'm going to say yes. They've got a good record against Essendon here. Um, I think they'll go all right in that one. Take that, Bombers. Uh, to the to Marvel Stadium the week after against Collingwood. Uh, no. <laughs> you gave it a thought. In uh, your wild dream. Round 10, back at home against the Demons. No. Uh, on the road, round 11 against the Crows. No. Uh, all right, round 12, home versus St. Kilda. Uh, no. Oh, right. Ross Lyon will shut them down. Okay, uh, North Melbourne at home the week after? Yes. Okay, there we go, you're on to three. Three big wins for the West Coast Eagles, and we're just in the middle of June at this point. Uh, round 15, uh, on the road against Essendon? No. Nope. Uh after that, uh, we've got Hawthorne at home for West Coast. I'm going to say yes. All right. I think Hawks are going to have big wins and disappointing losses again. I think they're a young team building. Mm. They'll be promising but inconsistent. Mm. And and I think what it, you'll probably see a pattern emerging on this, Peter, yeah. is that I'm looking for teams that West Coast can beat at home. Mm. And if they're going to get to anything like uh, an improved tally of wins and losses – they're the ones they're going to need to focus on. Don't worry too much about what happens away. You can worry about that later. Let's play well mm. in front of your own fans. Okay. Uh, back on the road in round 17 against the Demons? Um, no. Uh, at home, uh, round 18 versus the Lions? No. Uh, away versus St Kilda for round 19? No. Oh, boy, it's going to be a long end of the year. Uh, they've got a away derby uh, in round 20? No. No. All right. Uh, West Coast versus Gold Coast, uh, round 21 at yes, home. Yes, I didn't like what I saw from Gold Coast yep. in their first hit out. I mm. know it's early. Um, and obviously that Damien Hardwick will be trying to bed down a game plan. Mm. Um, but as a rough guide, what you look for, I reckon, is in the early preseason games, you look for form to flow according to the team's preparation. So in other words, if a team went deep into September – they're likely to be less prepared than a team who finished up at the end of the home and away games. Mm. Now, Gold Coast played Brisbane, mm. who went all the way to the grand final. Yep. 
and Gold Coast obviously bowed out after round 24 mm. and Brisbane belted them. Mm. Didn't just beat them, they belted them. Yeah. So wasn't good signs. That that bothered me. Only doors. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I think, um, I mean, Damien Hardwick is obviously a very good coach and there's a lot of talent available to him there, but maybe more work to do. It might not be as quick a fix as everyone mm. thinks. He might need the power of the positive mind book as well um, from get Stokesy. Him, get under Ben Stokes. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting there on his bookshelf, I am absolutely sure. Just get a hold of it. Uh, the Eagles have got the stitch up. They've got to go down to Hobart to take on North Melbourne in round 22. It's a tough place to win down there. Mm. Um, I'm going to say no. Strange things happen down in Tassie. Uh, round 23 at home versus Carlton. No. And then they finish off the season with a nice, friendly little trip to GMHBA Stadium in Geelong. Yeah, not a happy hunting ground. <laughs> to see that happening, isn't it? One for, for West Coast. So I think... Three, four, five. What I'd say is that I don't think Geelong... I'm, I'm tipping Geelong won't be a, a riser or a contender this year, but... Mm. It's a very hard place to win there. And they're going to have finished the grandstand there, so it's going to be a coliseum. <laughs> Great. And the Every year they e- open a new section. The Eagles are going to feel like the Lions. Uh, sorry, the Christians, not the Lions. <laughs> in, in the coliseum. Different, day, yeah, different, uh, yep. <laughs> different outcome, I think. So, so, so five wins. Yeah. And uh, I think that's been about your sort of prediction, hasn't it? Uh, you know, sort of in that... Four to six wins for the year. I think if they bracket. get if they got to six, yep. that would be okay with mm. me. Yep. Um, now the thing about West Coast is that a lot of it depends on what happens with their older players. And you know, if Elliot Yo stays out there, and they've got Elliot Yo and Tim Kelly in the midfield, and then their kids can play around that, and maybe Dom Shee comes in every, every now and again, and Liam Duggan comes in there every now and again, that's that's actually okay. Mm. You know, I won't threaten the top teams, but it's actually okay. Um, and that'll get them a few wins, particularly at home. But if Elliot Yo goes down and they end up with kids mm. in the midfield, yep. they're going to take some frightful hammerings. Yeah, not good. Um, I was feeling a lot more confident about Fremantle's year before I looked at the fixtures again. So I'm not too sure uh, what numbers we're going to get to going through these ones. But the Dockers kick off their year, round one at home versus Brisbane. Look, I think they're a chance in this, but but given that I've tipped Brisbane to win the flag (laughs) and given that Brisbane appeared up and about against Gold Coast, I'm going to say Brisbane wins that, so no. That's a no. I'll cross out the tick. Uh, Round two on the road versus the Kangaroos at Marvel. I'm going to say they can win that. Can win that. I hope so. Uh, Round three at home versus the Crows. I'm going to say they can win that. to Adelaide Oval versus the Blues. I'm going to say they don't win that. Don't win that. And they stay at Adelaide Oval for the next week against Port Adelaide. I'm going to say they don't win that. Eesh. So we're looking two and three early doors as they head into a derby, uh, which was an away derby, uh, against the Eagles. Uh, I say they win both the derby, so yep. they win that. Okay. Uh, I'll just mark round 20 down as well. Uh, round seven versus the Bulldogs at home. Um, so they didn't play well against the Bulldogs at home last week. They got distracted by Rory Lobb mm. um, and copped a fair belting. But I think they'll be better. I think they'll be better around the midfield. The key against the Doggies is you've got to match their midfield power. And then they tend the rest of the game tends to sort itself out and you, mm. they tend to be you, – you're able to handle them. I think with five back in the middle, I think they can do that. So I'm going to say they can beat the Dogs in round seven. So that makes them four and three, correct? Yes. 
yeah, just getting in front of the ledge out there uh, before they head to the MCG versus Richmond. Actually, this is a big one. Um, I'm not thinking Richmond's going to be that strong. I'm going to say Fremantle can beat Richmond at the MCG. Okay. Uh, Sydney uh, versus Sydney at home. Uh, I'm going to say they can beat Sydney at home. Wow. So back to Marvel Stadium for the Saints in round 10. No. Cross that one out. Uh, They host the Pies on Friday night at Optus. Um, Yeah, interested to see how Collingwood go this year, but I'm going to say a no to that one. No to that one. Uh, Then they go to the Northern Territory to take on the Demons. Uh, No to that one. Uh, Got a buy around 13. Bulldogs up again at Marvel Stadium. No. Boy, that's uh, that is four losses on the trot as they host Gold Coast at Optus. Uh, I'm gonna say yes. Yes to that one. Uh, they've got Sydney at the SCG next round. No. Uh, they've got Richmond at home. Yes. Uh, they've got Hawks in Tasmania. So Launceston rather than Hobart. Yep. Which is key because Launceston's a little bit more friendly. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say they can beat the Hawks in one system. All right, here we go. Uh, round 19 versus the Demons at home. I'm going to say they can win that. All right. Uh, the round 20 derby, we've got a tick on that one. Uh, the Bombers at the MCG, round 21. Um, I'm going to say no, even mm. though I think they're not without hope. Over there, possibly not. Could be a, uh, a yeah, big game to uh, craft two teams. Top eight hopes there uh, versus uh, Geelong at home, round 22. Yes, Yes, that one. Uh, over to Giants Stadium in round 23. Given they got flogged by 70, 70 points by the Giants last last year, yep. uh, I don't know that they can turn around that, so no. And round 24, they finish it off with Port at Optus Stadium. Um, I'm going to give them that, and I think that gives them 12 and 11, doesn't it? Uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. yeah. 12. Yeah, and I think 12-11 is the pass mark for Justin Long. You know, okay. That wouldn't quite get him in the eight. 13-10 probably would. But I want to see them have a winning season. For me, that's what I want. I want to see them win more than they lose. That's a 12-11 season. That's about where I reckon they'll end up. 12-11. Okay, so missing missing the eight. Just missing the eight. Mm. Yeah. Okay. What are your thoughts, people? 0487 736 736 is the text line. The Barrand O'Day open line is 13 12 55. Barrand O'Day, because the little things are everything. We'll be back with more after the break. Welcome back to the show. Still deliberating in the Sam Palpepper Tribunal case over there in Melbourne. Clearly, they're giving a lot of thought as to what should happen uh, in that. And clearly, I think Sam Palpepper will be very nervous about what they think should happen in that. I'm very nervous about my counting. I think we got to 13 and 10, not 12 and 11. Oh, that's even better for Freo. They play it's, finals. Uh, even more rosy uh, for the Fremantle Dockers. So, uh, yeah, a bit of maths. Uh, homework for me to do between uh, now and next week. Just a bit of uh, revision. A bit of brushing up. Let's get through some texts. I'll be better. That's all I'm trying to say is I will be better. Uh, uh, look, you've pushed yourself to higher standards. You've had a moral victory. Yeah, and, I mean, we only got this far because of how hard I played the game. Yes, you did. Heater right. yeah. ball. Yeah, it's the one. Uh, Frosty from Denmark. G'day, Frosty. Hi, Mark. Not sure about uh, not giving us a chance in rounds two and three, talking about the Eagles. We knocked the Giants and Bulldogs off last year. I would put us in the windows for those games. Uh, well, you're in the window for every game because the, they you put as many blokes on the park as they do. Mm. And, uh, uh, and, obviously, the score starts level. But, yeah, I'm... 
pretty confident the dogs won't drop the ball against uh, mm. again. I think the Giants will be strong. Yeah. So you don't hold any fears about the Western Bulldogs and, you know, sort of the chat that's been going around with a disconnect and Bevo and Chris Grant and just seeming a bit unhappy. Yeah, there's a little bit there. There's a lot of talent there as well. I, yeah. I, one of my journo mates over east is a strong doggies fan. I had a chat to him the other day. He thinks they're okay mm-hmm. and there's too much talent there to not go well. Mm. I still can't believe they're still deliberating. At the uh, tribunal. Lisa's not happy with five wins. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa from Ellenbrook, geez, does five wins for the Eagles. I was hoping between eight to ten, providing they get players back and no more serious injuries. Also, I think Gaff's playing days on the wing are over. He hasn't got that speed anymore. Great show again this week, guys. Can't wait for you guys to go five days a week. You might be waiting a little bit. So a few people have suggested Gaff should be a sub. It's not the worst, sol- it's not the worst suggestion going around. It, it's doesn't make sense to my brain that you know it can be critical about what he has but then if you put him in the sub role it's like oh, all of a sudden if this player goes down if that player you know three different players goes down all of a sudden you can throw him out there and he can be a mr fix it almost in that way but putting him in in the starting 22 it's like nah hang on a minute well i think what it does it enables you to play a young player at the start of the game yeah give him opportunity and no matter when you get the injury if it's an injury that requires a sub right you know he's got the miles in his legs to run the game out yeah and you want the younger player to get the the first going when it's hot yeah. and when it's um really going so yeah. okay i can uh, understand that one uh jason on the text line morning boys baseball has made test cricket watchable again not as slow and boring, but more aggressive and fun. And remember, lads, England are the moral world test champions. It's just the give that keeps giving, isn't it? Well done, Jason. <laughs> it's like the uh, yeah the uh, Johnny Besto run out. Love that. Uh, Graham from Padbury. Hi, uh, Duff. With the West Coast financial, with West Coast, with West Coast the financial behemoth it is now. It's easy to forget just how hard they had to fight in the early years. Even the tiniest concessions and ones taken for granted now, like home finals, had to be fought for tooth and nail. The Eagles and Fremantle to a slightly lesser extent get little or no help from the AFL and unlike Eastern States clubs, contribute millions of dollars each year to the local league. Trevor Nisbet was a massive part of that and should be remembered for it accordingly. Yep, I agree with that. Trevor has had his ups and downs. Clearly the the drug scandal between to probably about 2002 and 2007 was, a, um, you know, A, it was a premiership and another grand final, but also B, it was a very difficult time for the club. It was probably a time I think we think the club could have handled better. Um, and uh, as we learn more about that as time goes on, we actually learned that they were trying to do things behind the scenes. They probably, if anything, just weren't as transparent as they should have been. I think the other thing we're learning about that time is that they didn't get much help from the AFL um, in all of that, and hopefully the AFL's learned from that. And he's right about the two clubs over here. We don't get a lot of help from the AFL. I think the AFL knows that it can rely on the WA clubs to do their bit to not get into serious financial difficulty, to help fund the WA football system, Mm. and then that enables them to focus on growing the game in Queensland and in New South Wales, and uh, and that should never be forgotten by gloating East Coast clubs. Mm. Um, There's not many East Coast Coast clubs who have to uh, put up a million or two million dollars a year to fund their local state system. Yeah, it would be interesting to see uh, if they had to do that, how much it would sort of level things out. 
Well, a few of them would go under very quickly. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, just a couple of quick ones. Ben saying, hey, Duff, with what we're expecting with the wicket tomorrow, is Terry Alderman still able to roll his arm over? I'll and... give him a call. I saw the great DK Lilly there Did you? last night at yeah. Trevor Nisbet's function. Yeah. So he's obviously a person that Trevor's touched base with over the years. Maybe we get him to roll his arm so over. That'd be nice. And Daryl from Kingsley saying, hopefully if Cam Green gets a bowl, he won't be instructed to bowl short. Far better bowler at using his height to seam the ball. I agree completely. I can't believe what they've done with Cam Green as a bowler. Get him to bowl line and length, top of off, nibbling a bit each way. With his height, he should become a great weapon and not just an oddity bowling a few bounces. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with another show next week.